0: So it's a delight to have uh, Dr. Renahan back. Um, If you're not familiar with uh, Dr. Renahan, he is a uh, professor, he's been at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido for nearly 20 years, is that right, teaching? Um, But most recently, uh, he is leading an effort to begin uh, a Baptist Reformed Seminary in uh, Fort Worth and we heard about that last night. the plans and all that, uh, all the details coming together uh, uh, to to begin a a, a a new seminary. It's no small undertaking. It begins small, um, uh, but with God's blessing, it will uh, uh, be a place of study and training for uh, uh, men to learn the scriptures, uh, to learn about pastoral ministry and then go out uh, as uh, under-shepherds uh, in the church. And there is a great need for um, for that work and for men in pastoral ministry. Uh, Jim gave, a, a, I think, an astounding um, statistic. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the average pastoral tenure is less than two years for a person. We should be thankful uh, that we have uh, a teaching elder of a long tenure in our church. Uh, but uh, Dr. Renahan's here, his wife Lynn, uh, uh, Jim has five children most notably, uh, his daughter Beth who plays the uh, piano, adorns our singing of hymns, daughter Susie with her voice. So we're glad you're here and back with us, it's a delight. Um, uh, this morning, uh, uh, Jim will be teaching from Psalm 15. Uh, there may be some time afterwards in which you want to give a little update on the work of the, the, the uh, seminary, It'll take questions and answers. But let me read Psalm 15 and then we'll uh, begin. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your tent? On your holy hill. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, who does these things shall never be moved. And let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, what a delight and privilege uh, it is to be in the house of the Lord this morning uh, to worship you uh, and to hear the scriptures read and taught. We uh, Are thankful for uh, Dr. Renahan uh, to be here uh, to hold forth from us, for us, but we do pray uh, the ministry of the Spirit uh, to speak and to teach and to apply uh, uh, the words of the Lord, the word of the living God. So we ask your blessings upon our time, upon uh, Dr. Renahan, and upon those who have gathered here this morning to hear the word. In Christ's
1: name, amen. Well, good morning. It's really good to be back with you again today. I appreciate uh, the welcome and the fellowship that we have in Christ. Psalm, pardon me, Psalm 15 is a really interesting psalm. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary on the psalms, proposes a possible scenario out of which it has been written. I think it's a, it's a good proposal. He suggests that David perhaps was watching as pilgrims came to the tabernacle in Jerusalem, walked up the hill, and as David looked out on these people who were coming to worship God in the tabernacle, he asks this question, who has the right to come and stand before the Lord? Because David knows that many of the people who would come to worship were actually hypocrites. They weren't people who had a genuine faith and who loved the Lord. And so, Calvin suggests that perhaps that's what's going on here, as David looks at these people who are coming up the hill. And he asks a question, and then he answers the question, and then I want to give you the interpretation of David's answer. the question is quite straightforward. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's as if David looks at the multitudes who are making their way up the hill, and he asks, Lord, which one? Is it that man? Is it that woman? Who is it from this group who has the right to come and be present? And he uses really interesting language. He he talks about abiding or taking up permanent residency in the tabernacle of God. You remember that the temple had not yet been built that waited for Solomon, David's son, to build it. But the tabernacle was the symbolic dwelling place of God, a tent that was pitched among the nation. And David effectively is asking the question, Lord, who is it that may live in your presence? Who may approach you and stay there. And he does this with uh, this classic Hebrew parallelism. You're familiar with the Psalms, and you know that oftentimes an idea is expressed once, and then it's repeated in similar but different language in the next line or two. And that's exactly what we have here. Now the language is no, not so longer sojourn, but it's dwelling to abide. and the, the tent becomes God's holy hill, Mount Zion. You know, in the Old Testament especially, God is presented to us symbolically as dwelling on the mountaintop. He owns the mountaintop. He owns the high place. This is one of the reasons why it was sinful on the part of many of the kings, when we read about them, even some of the good kings, that they failed to remove the high places. Because the the, the pagans, the idolaters, the Canaanites, who worshipped on the high places were effectively challenging the reign of the one true God who claimed the high places for himself. It was very important uh, for those high places to be removed. And so David is thinking in these terms. The Lord owns Mount Zion. The Lord's temple, or I'm sorry, tabernacle, is pitched at the top of the mountain. Who is the one who can dwell here? David effectively is asking God the question, Lord, who may take up residence With you, And if you stop to think about it for a moment, it becomes a really urgent question. Who has the right to worship God? Who has the right to be in God's presence? Dwelling and abiding is very different from visiting. Here we are for a weekend. God willing, tomorrow we'll get in the car and head west, and 20 hours of driving later we'll be home in Southern California. It's a long trip, but we're here for a visit. And uh, hopefully, perhaps next year, we'll be able to come back again. Well, We'll see what a year brings. Um, We don't dwell here. We don't live here. You do. This is the place where you dwell. David is using that language for permanent abode. And the answer comes in verses 2 through 5. The question is presented twice in parallel language, but then the answer is given to us in verses 2 through 5. And David responds to this question with both positive and negative replies. And there's a pattern. There's a positive, then there's a negative, then there's a positive, then there's a negative, and all of it is leading towards a conclusion. Now, the first thing that David does when he begins to identify the person who may dwell or abide in the presence of God is to speak about actions. He who walks, Blamelessly, and he who does what is right, and he who speaks the truth in his heart. He walks, he does, or your translation might say works, and speaks. Walk, of course, is a description of lifestyle, the one who walks uprightly in holiness and integrity, the one who does, the one who works, who acts righteously, who performs deeds that are pleasing and acceptable to God. And the one who speaks, the fruit of the lips. Now, it's interesting, though, that the speech is in the heart. He speaks truth in his heart. Calvin's comment on this is, to speak in the heart is a strong figurative expression, but it expresses more forcibly David's meaning than if he had said, from the heart. It denotes such agreement and harmony between the heart and tongue as that the speech is, as it were, a vivid representation of the hidden affection or feeling within. I think Calvin has it exactly right. The the words that are on the lips of this person who may dwell in the presence of God are words that express the truth that is in the heart. He speaks from the heart. He speaks with the heart. He speaks in his heart. Now, this leads to the second or the first negative, which we find in verse 3, and verse 3 picks up the same idea of speaking. Now, it's not speaking truth in his heart, but it does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In fact, it's the same three qualifications that are mentioned in verse 2, but they're presented to us in reverse order. He doesn't speak against his neighbor. It's possible to speak kindly to the face of someone else while you despise that person with the heart and speak against him in his absence. David says, this righteous person who may dwell in the presence of God, will not do this. And then likewise, he does no evil to his neighbor. He does not, um, um, he, he, he does what is right. He does no evil to his neighbor. You see the contrast between the two. On the one hand, there's an absence of wickedness in his response to others, but there's also a positive statement in which there is, and uh, that these things are not present in him. He does not do this evil against his neighbor. He's characterized by a life of righteousness. And then thirdly, he does not take up a reproach against his friend. He walks blamelessly. So this qualification is very high. In verses 4 and 5, David continues. Now he presents the second positive. In whose and Now this one is, is very interesting if you pause to think about it for a moment in whose eyes a vile person is despised. I have to be honest with you that this isn't the first thing that would come into my mind when I made out a listing of the qualifications for someone to dwell in the presence of God. How often is despising someone a positive trait? And yet that's exactly what David says here. He tells us that this person who may take up his residence in the presence of God despises Vile people. He um, is a discerning person and he distinguishes between people. He despises some while he honors others. And the distinction between the two groups is with the Lord in mind. How these people walk towards God. That's what allows David or David to see that this person despises those who are vile but honors those who fear the Lord. It's their relationship to God that causes him to reject or to appreciate who these people are. In many ways, the evaluation of these people is based upon their love for God. David effectively here is presenting to us an adjustment, but a a paraphrase of the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. How does this man, how does this woman love God? Does he Or doesn't she? And the response that the individual who may dwell in the presence of God gives is based upon how that individual seeks to serve and love the Lord his God. At the end of verse 4, David picks up again the relationship between heart and word. The man who may dwell in the Lord's house keeps his word. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. When he gives his word, when he makes a statement, when he commits himself to something, he sees it through, even if it means difficulty for himself, because he has given his word. He said, this is what I will do. He's committed to it. He's a righteous man. He keeps his word. When he swears, when he promises, when he makes a vow, he follows through, even when it means that he hurts himself. So in the second positive We have these qualifications that have to do with the Lord and have to do with the integrity of the individual. But this leads David to the second set of negatives. He describes the man's use of his money in verse 5, who does not put his money in interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. In fact, David here evaluates this person who may dwell in the presence of the Lord based upon how he relates to the poor. Is he someone who's characterized by an abuse of the poor, or is he characterized by graciousness, kindness, generosity? We run into this this language, does not put out his money at interest. Your translation might say uh, there is no usury in him. Usury is an old word. Interest, I think, is a little bit too mild for what the Hebrew text actually says. Usury is an old word that means to take advantage of others by excessive rates of interest or other means of financial gain. But the idea is keeping the poor in poverty by abuse of financial relations with them. Really stealing from them, taking from them the little that they have in order to line your own pocket. That's what David is talking about here in this place. And so when it says uh, in the ESV he does not put out his money at interest, it's a little bit more mild than what it actually says. It's about taking advantage of others by means of financial relationships. And David says he can't be bought. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. He can't be bought for the sake of lies. Now David here once again is thinking about someone with wealth who uses money in order to oppress the innocent and protect the guilty from deserved punishment. Look, I'll give you this money if you'll come to the court and you will testify in this way. So you have an abuse of justice, you have an abuse of those who are righteous by causing them to be declared guilty in court or by protecting those who really are guilty, making them look as though they are innocent. David is deeply concerned with the way that this person handles his money. In fact, we ought to remember the words of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember what he said? It's one of those texts that's frequently misquoted by people. Oftentimes you hear it, money is the root of all evil. But that's not actually what Paul says. Paul says it's the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. In fact, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. David anticipates this uh, statement of Paul hundreds of years before, or perhaps Paul picks it up from reading and knowing David so well, but he recognizes that it is the love of money, the desire to fill the pocket that leads to all kinds of abuses, oppression, and injustice, and unrighteousness, and false testimony, and even the result of declaring the guilty to be innocent or causing the innocent to be declared guilty. All of this is wrong. David looks at these qualifications and lays them out for us, and he says at the end of verse 5, he who does these things shall never be moved. Now, you have to read that in light of the question at the very beginning of Psalm 15. Shall never be moved, that is, will be able to abide or dwell in the presence of God in his holy hill forever. David looks at those who ascend the hill. He thinks through the qualifications that are necessary to stand before God And he lays them out for us in terms of life words and deeds, actions, all of these things. And David makes an evaluation of the individuals who come and stand before him. Now, when I read these words, I think, man, this is a high standard. To come into the presence of God and to dwell there, to live in his presence is a high standard. And I ask myself the question, what should we make of this? What should we think about this? I ask the question, does this psalm, when read in this way, encourage me? If I apply this psalm carefully to myself, in all honesty, Do I qualify to dwell in God's holy hill? Am I a man who by his actions and his words, by the way he relates to other people, by the way that he serves the Lord with his whole heart, am I a man who by my actions qualifies to live in the presence of God? And it crushes me because I have to say no. I don't qualify. This psalm really condemns me, and it tells me that I'm not one of those who qualifies to dwell in God's presence. Now, you know, there is a traditional interpretation of this psalm, and the traditional interpretation goes something like this. This psalm is a means of distinguishing between the sheep and the goats or the wheat and the tares. The sheep are the ones who live in this way. The goats are the ones who are condemned by this psalm. It sees Christianity as a mixture of the two. And the true church, the true believers, consists only of those who are described in this psalm. Hypocrites live one way. The faithful live another way. And if you go home and you look at your commentaries on the book of Psalms, that's clearly the majority position. But I have to disagree with it. And I'll give you the reasons why I have to disagree with that. It may be the easiest reading. It may be the most obvious reading of the text if David, in fact, is looking at individuals and thinking through how they may qualify to stay at the tabernacle of God. But I want to suggest to you that for several reasons, it doesn't fit. It's not a good interpretation of this psalm. For example, first off, That interpretation of the psalm doesn't fit the context of the surrounding psalms. Now, you know, when we read the psalms, we need to recognize that whoever compiled them did not simply haphazardly place them one after another, but there actually are clusters of psalms that have very specific relationships one to another. Some of these are obvious. There are are five books of the psalms, You know that from reading through them. But you think of something like the Songs of Ascents, 15 psalms from Psalm 120 through 134. Obviously, they're grouped together for a specific reason. They're songs that were used by pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem. And they would sing these psalms. And as as you read through them, you can see how the the theme of mountains, hilltops, Zion on the hill, uh, it makes sense that they're songs of ascent. There are also psalms there that are psalms of lowliness, which is very appropriate when you're climbing up to Mount Zion to think of the lowliness of your own heart as you come before the Lord. I want to suggest to you that there's a context here for Psalm 15, and when we read Psalm 15 in its context, we can hardly say that this is a psalm that is intended to allow us to evaluate ourselves and determine whether or not we can stand in the presence of God on the basis of our actions. Look, for example, at Psalm 12. Just before. Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2. To the choir master according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Words of condemnation. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Of course, you know, the Old Testament word for fool doesn't mean a silly person, but it means a person of immoral behavior. That's what a fool is. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's the psalm immediately preceding Psalm 15. With this universal condemnation, the Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 3, doesn't he? When he would Bring all of the world guilty before God. Now, we read Psalm 12, we read Psalm 14, we read these statements about sinfulness, and then we come to Psalm 15 and say, no, wait a minute, all of a sudden it's about how righteous one can be and to qualify to stand before God? Even in verse six, uh, Psalm 16, immediately following, we have the same kind of idea. Look at that one with me. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Where does David's goodness come from? David tells us that his goodness is from the Lord. He doesn't claim righteousness in himself. He doesn't have any good apart from God. Now, you might say, hold on, brother, wait a minute. Psalm 15 is about relative righteousness. It's about the deeds of a godly man as over against the deeds of a hypocrite. Well, that's possible. That might be a way to interpret the psalm. Uh, If we continue reading on in the context, Psalm 17, we might have a hint of that. A prayer of David, hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit, from your presence let my vindication come, let your eyes behold the right, you have tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, you will find nothing, I've purposed that my mouth will not transgress. David here protests his innocence to God. Maybe that's an insight into what's going on in Psalm 15. But if we continue to read on in Psalm 17, verse 5, we notice something really interesting. Verse 4 With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear hear my words. Even here, David recognizes the need to pray for God's help in his life. He doesn't attribute his righteousness to himself, but rather to his reliance upon the Lord. It comes back to God, not to who or what David is. Come back to Psalm 15. Think about the question and think about the conclusion. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then down to the end of the psalm, he who does these things shall never be moved. The context seems to militate against the traditional interpretation, but so do the questions of the psalm itself. Are these relative terms? If David is speaking of relative righteousness of the claim to innocency that he can make. Are these relative terms? These are qualifications, rather, for permanent residence in God's presence. It's strong language. Who may abide? Who may dwell? He will never be moved. Whoever meets these qualifications can stay there forever. Is anyone able to do these things so that God looks upon him and says, you may stay in my presence based on what you say and on what you do. Notice a key phrase in verse 2 of Psalm 15. The ESV renders it, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. But the New King James, the Old King James, and the New American Standard have a different translation, which I I think is a little bit better. He who works righteousness. Works righteousness. Now, usually when we employ that phrase, we think of it as a noun, and here it's a verb. Works righteousness is a phrase that is used to describe the false notion That by the accumulation of our good deeds, God will accept us. Uh, As evangelical Christians who believe in the Reformed faith, we believe that the only way we may stand before God is on the basis of an alien righteousness, an extrinsic righteousness, a righteousness from without that is granted to us by God through the imputation of the work of Christ. We don't stand before him on the basis of our own works righteousness. And yet that's what David says The one who may dwell on God's holy hill does what is right. He works righteousness. In fact, verse 2 is a form of the Old Testament command, do this and live. Is this how we stand in God's presence? Is this how you will stand in God's presence? Do you look forward to the great judgment day based upon your works? what you've done, and expect that you may dwell in the presence of God because you meet the standard? You see, the traditional interpretation of Psalm 15 only leads to discouragement and shame and doubt because we need to ask questions such as, who can abide these things? Who can fulfill these things? Who can do these things? Or to use the language of the psalm, who may abide in the Lord's tabernacle? Who may dwell in his holy hill? If I'm honest with myself, my answer has to be, not me. I don't qualify. I don't meet this standard. I cannot ascend to Mount Zion and stand there in God's presence based upon my actions and my words. I want to suggest to you that there's a better interpretation of Psalm 15 And it's not that David is writing to promote introspection and discouragement, self-examination, that somehow I can meet the standard. But rather, here, David writes prophetically. In fact, David writes to turn us away from ourselves. He does describe someone who does these things, who works righteousness, who keeps the commandments of God, who earns the right to dwell in God's holy hill. We have to ask the question, who is this one? Who does have the right to stand before God and dwell with him? Well, David himself provides to us the answer in other places in the Psalms. In Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, we read, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, Rule in the midst of your enemies. He welcomes someone to sit at his side, to take up residence with him. In Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7, we read these words, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. The Lord invites someone to come and stand with him on Mount Zion. But there's another place. In the book of Psalms, that's a clear parallel to Psalm 15. I'd like you to turn there with me, and it will help us to understand what's happening in Psalm 15. It's Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is the third part of a trilogy. Psalm 22 speaks about uh, the death of one. Psalm 23 speaks about this one as a shepherd. And then Psalm 24. Notice it with me, a Psalm of David. It begins with a claim of sovereignty. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The Lord is the Lord of all of the earth. And then David asks the question that we encountered in Psalm 15, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Now, what he's about to say is the same, although it's expressed slightly differently. But the basic idea is identical to what is presented to us in Psalm 15. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. We read this far in the psalm. We have a, a claim of universal sovereignty by God over all the earth, and then we have a repetition of the same type of questions that we encountered in Psalm 15. but some, And then we have the Selah, a Hebrew word, Probably what it means is pause and meditate. But notice what happens in the rest of Psalm 24. It proceeds on to answer the question in a way that Psalm 15 doesn't. Psalm 15 anticipates this. Psalm 24 states it. You see the parallel? You see the question? You see the, the, the desire for qualifications? The rest of Psalm 24 answers this by giving to us a portrait of the one who ascends the hill of the Lord and has the right to stand in his presence. It it's, uses wonderful language. Try to picture this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. It's as if the doorposts, the gates of the city of the temple are personified. They're, they're given humanity. As if they can move and respond and act. Lift up. Why be lifted up? That the king of glory may come in. That the king of glory may enter through these gates and come into the presence of God. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Lord, who may ascend your holy hill? It's the king of glory. And the portrait that is given to us is the portrait of the temple itself becoming alive so that the king of glory may be welcomed into the presence of God Forever and ever. You see how Psalm 24 picks up the same theme as Psalm 15, but it continues on and it gives to us a, an answer to the question, a response to David's query. And Psalm 24, I'm sure you see, is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the kingship of Messiah. It describes to us the glorious entrance of the one who ascends God's holy hill, and has the right to stand there in the presence of God. Now, if we take Psalm 15 and set it next to Psalm 24, we begin to understand and we have a really helpful interpretation of what's going on in Psalm 15. Psalm 15 must be understood in this same way. It speaks to us not of ourselves, and of our actions and our qualifications to be in the presence of God, but rather it speaks to us of Jesus Christ, who has completely and perfectly satisfied all of the acts of righteousness that are described in Psalm 15. He is the man of Psalm 15. Let's go back there. Turn back to Psalm 15, and we can read it now. With Christ in mind, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, can that be said of Christ? And does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Jesus Christ is the man of Psalm 15, the one who abides in God's tabernacle and dwells in his holy hill of Zion. Who is this man? It's not you and me, but it's Jesus Christ our Lord. Now think about Psalm 15 just for a moment with me. If it's applied to us, Psalm 15 is a psalm of law because it condemns us. It shows us our sin. It shows us that we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we fail to do all of these things. It would be the height of arrogance to read Psalm 15 and say, you know what, I qualify. I can stand in God's presence. I'm okay. I did it. That would be arrogant. If we're truthful with ourselves, it slays us because it's law. But when it's read in the light of Jesus Christ, you know what it becomes? It becomes all gospel because it turns us away from ourselves and turns us to the Savior who perfectly satisfies all of the demands of God's holy law and grants to us his righteousness so that we may stand in the presence of God. May this psalm apply to us, yes, if we come to the psalm through Jesus Christ our Lord and in his righteousness, not our own, but in his righteousness, stand before the God of heaven and earth. Do we have a right to stand on God's holy hill? Yes, but not on the basis of what we have done, rather on the basis of Jesus Christ our Lord, who has perfectly obeyed all of the commandments of God and who offered himself in our place that he might endure God's wrath for us. You see, when we read Psalm 15, we need to see Jesus Christ, and we need to trust in him because he is the man who is described here. He alone is righteous, and we must find our righteousness in him. Don't be discouraged by this psalm, although you could be. But you see, this psalm is meant to cause you to look to Christ, who has fulfilled the Lord's righteous demands, and and perhaps that's why in the context in chapter 16, as David contemplates living in God's presence, he ends the Psalm, Psalm 16 with these wonderful words, You make known to me the path of life, the path that leads to the temple of God. In your presence... Where God dwells, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's again the language of dwelling with God. But it's a language of dwelling with God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what he has done through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me say one more thing. This does not mean, though, that we can read Psalm 15... And all of a sudden fall prey to antinomianism and say, you know, what, it's not about me, it's about Jesus, so it doesn't really apply to me except in the gospel. Well, it does apply to you in the gospel, but it also does tell us that this is how we ought to live to the glory of God. That our lives ought to reflect this, not so that we might be welcomed into the presence of God, but rather because we have already been welcomed into the presence of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our obedience, our our commitment to do the things of Psalm 15 is because of what the Lord has already done for us. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. The gospel becomes for us a motivating factor so that we cry out to God and ask him that we might be like the person who is described for us here in Psalm 15. Once again, I say not so that we might earn a place there, but because that place has been given to us by our Lord and because we desire to love and serve him. Don't trust in your own righteousness because you will fail. Don't read Psalm 15 and foolishly apply it to yourself and think that you can meet these qualifications. My friend, you cannot. But God has provided one who does meet these qualifications, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel says, if you trust in him, then you will abide in God's holy hill forever. It's a wonderful psalm, isn't it? Law, but full of gospel. Thanks be to God for this. Well, I think that my time is just about up, and uh, I won't uh, be able to talk about our project that we spoke of last night. If you have any questions about it, come and speak to me. But I hope you're encouraged by Psalm 15. Um, when I worked through it, uh, I, I really came to love it very much, and I hope that you will love it as well. And, uh, I, you know, I don't like to disagree with all the commentators, but I like to preach about Christ, and I like to see him in the Psalms. So there we are, Psalm 15. Thank you very much. Uh, I guess we gather again at 1045, is that right? Uh, 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock, very good, all right. Sure, let's pray. Father, thank you that our acceptance with you is not based on what we do, but it's based upon what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you that there is one who perfectly satisfies all of the demands of this psalm and who grants to us his righteousness as we depend upon him by faith. May your gospel encourage us, and we ask that you would help us to live according to the precepts of this psalm not in order that we might dwell in your presence, but because we are already accepted into your presence and because we want to show our love to you. Bless us in our fellowship. Bless our worship together, we ask in Jesus' name.